Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf, and today I am joined by my guest, Chris Kahn. Chris reached out to the show and has a really beautiful, touching story, and one that hopefully will inspire. This is going to be a two-part series, so this is episode one, and in episode two, we'll be joined by his wife. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, thank you, Michelle. I'm glad that uh, you guys responded so quickly to my inquiry. Yeah. Um, I appreciate it. It was great. Our 15-minute introduction phone call turned into two hours. So (laughs) So I appreciate the invite. Yeah, no problem. Obviously, your story inspired me. And and just hearing it, I didn't want to cut you off. It was great to hear it. And I can't wait to share it with our guest. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, as many people kind of experienced, you know, I came from a broken home. So I live with my mother and I have three siblings, uh, all younger than me, and I have all sisters. So I was raised in a home of all women. So I had my mom and my three sisters and then my great grandmother lived with us. So needless to say, I know how to uh, fold laundry and put the toilet seat down. I know how to do all those things and cook (laughs) and things like that. So I had lots of like loving women around me. Growing up, uh, there was a lot of like substance abuse in our home. And that probably is another podcast about just children growing up and how they deal with substance abuse around them being raised by that way. Uh, Needless to say, it really created a lot of drive in my own personality. So when I left the home, I was determined, like, I want a better life. Um, So when I served a mission for our church, I turned and tried to find a companion in this world that has those characteristics that I really need to help feel the drive and the hole that was in my heart a lot from the the hurt, the ne- neglect that came from my childhood. And so that's why I found Jeanette. She filled that hole and she'll be, you know, in the second part, but she really defines of who I am. Uh, we've been married uh, this September will be 24 years. Um, she's been with me the whole time I've been in the military for the last 24 years, my adult life. Uh, we've lived all around the world. Brought my family with me, missed many birthdays, anniversaries. There's many years where I'm not in any photographs. And we always get a joke because they're like, remember we went on this vacation? And I'm like, well, I wasn't there. They're like, oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So there's quite a bit of those. But my wife and I agreed that we create a home where we do everything together, meaning whether it's good, bad, or no matter how hard it is, we always face it together. And being a military family, having to move all over constantly, you realize that the most important relationship in this world is the people in your home. Because always moving, kids always had to make new friends. We always had to adjust. My wife and I agreed when we were first married, we sat down and actually had this conversation that I told her that like, I need this in a family. And she's like, I do too. And so we pushed forward that way. And so 
we now have our oldest 22, Kayla. She wrote me something that I can read in the second one about this. Um, and she's a Disney princess down in Disney World. And then uh, Heidi's 11. And so she's still in the home right now, just finished fifth grade. And really what, why I'm here is to tell our son's story, Austin, who passed away from um, cancer in 2018 at the age of 15. And how we have learned from that lesson of battling cancer for, you know, a year and a half and then uh, going through the ups and downs of thinking you're going to survive and everything's going to be fine to having a tragic end and the little miracles and blessings we felt along the way and the healing process and learning the hard lesson that there is no such thing as a correct way to grieve and there's not a process to it. It's very sloppy and very emotional and just how we learn to grow from that aspect of it. But yeah, um, let me just interrupt you there for a minute. A couple things you said that I'd love to comment on. I love that you were able to identify your needs and wants in a relationship and that you were able to communicate that with Jeanette. Such a critical element that is missing in a lot of relationships when you don't speak to your needs and wants, right? So that is beautiful that you created that and from such a rough beginning. And I love what you said about grief. It's not a defined process, right? It is messy. And we all have to find our own way through it. I mean, that's just the truth about grief. It's such an individual and and we spoke about this a little bit on the phone. It's such an individual process, right? Like you and your wife are both grieving the same loss of the same child. You're both that child's parent, but one's a father and one's a mother. And there's just such losses individual because of our individual relationship to the person that we lose. And yeah, absolutely. There's some shared aspects of it. Right. But the... You know, when you're alone in your thought, a lot of those unique relationships that you develop together, those moments you have together, the grieving is different in aspects. And yeah. uh, that's something that we, you know, we definitely had to learn. Mm-hmm. And my wife wants to talk a little bit about that, how we yeah. learn that process of communication. Which is a great but lead your- in to let our listeners know that that's what we're going to really focus on in the second half. Tell me, what does resilience mean to you? Resilience to me is more of learning these hard life lessons of that you never, a lot of people mistakenly use it as a word like bouncing back, but through tragedy, you never bounce back to the same person. So I don't define resiliency as bouncing back. To me, being a resilient person is coming back from a tragedy a better person. Right. And you have to redefine what better is though. And that's the hard part. It's not as clear as like, Hey, I can drive a car better or I can play a sport better. It's no, I can manage my emotions. I'm okay to be sad. I'm okay to be angry, but I can't stay there. Like I have to get building blocks of how I deal with my emotions, dealing with that, whatever the tragedy be. with us, it's, you know, it was the loss of Austin for other people, you know, it can be the loss of their spouse. It can be the loss of their faith. It can be the loss of whatever it is. It doesn't matter. It's just you have to define what res- being a resilient person is to me. 
And to me, it's, I have to be a little bit better. And I learned that from Austin. I learned, I created that definition from that when, um, and I'll, I'll tell you that, but when I had to help him learn to walk again, I learned that. I learned that lesson like straight from the, from holding my, you know, 13 year old son and helping him learn to walk again. Um, it humbles you to realize that like, you don't have to be a superstar. Sometimes it's just itty bitty increments of betterment and that's something to celebrate. And that's to me what I had to redefine resiliency as is that it's just, just a microcosm of improvement and I'm good. Like I can know I can go Yeah, and tomorrow will be better. That's so beautiful. I don't know about you, but there's a real concept in American culture regarding grief. And and people like to say, move on, move on, move on. But I think what you're talking about is how I feel about it. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I like to say I'm moving forward. Mm -hmm. Same, same concept. I agree. I think you have to. And I think I shared that with you the first time we met with a therapist. They said, you have to define develop a new relationship with Austin. And I was mad walking out of there. I was like, I don't want a new relationship. Like, this is bogus. Like, who tells somebody that? Granted, but a year later, I realized that she was correct. Yeah. And yeah. that was the hard part, is that when you have something you love and you're passionate about, it's hard to redefine that relationship because it's, in some ways, it's very one-sided. Like, it's me doing the thought process and, like, trying to fight to find the new normal and that is difficult and it's a journey and it's not as simple as one year time period two year that you're going to go through you know like most people when we we you lose a child and you're in the hospital setting they give you like this grief cycle and you're going to follow this pattern you mistakenly read it and think you're going to go step by step by step but really it's just a spider web i was like there is no like cycle it's just like you go all over the map and that was a hard lesson to learn trying to go on the journey of defining a new relationship with Austin was yeah. that I thought if I just followed the pattern, right. Like, like anger, okay. denial. Yeah. 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 Like, I'm going, here's where I'm at. Like, you know, it's like a, a roadmap, you know, I'm like, I'm almost there. And then all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, now I'm kind of sad again. I was like, wait, and it was a hard lesson to realize that it's all over. Yeah. And it's a journey that will probably be with me my whole life and being okay with that. And not fighting those emotions has been educational. To say. Yeah. When I started my grief journey, <laughs> I, I had that same romance, right? Like that, <laughs> that's been the psychology description and model for a long time. But I saw a meme online and it said, this is what grief looks like. And it has like a dot of like the thing that happens. And then there's scribbles all over And that is the process, right? It's messy. It's not defined. And sometimes you revisit aspects of it. So I I love that. I think think that I agree with you and you're spot on in my experience. Yeah. And that's, you know, when I talk to families that are losing children, I, I try to tell them, I was like, just, it's okay to be, it's okay to be messy in grief. Yeah. Like you don't have to like pretend to have it all together. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. It's just not okay to stay there. Like you gotta still gotta like live. And that's a hard part. It is. You know, as you know, it's hard. It's hard to live after a tragedy of losing a loved one is because in a lot of ways your mind and your thoughts are stuck. Yeah. But the world has moved on. <laughs> 
it's you know, so rude. <laughs> we talk about that like, a lot like, on the show. How dare they, right? I thought we were, you know, how dare they go on with their lives? Like, yeah. you should be miserable like me. Exactly. Uh, but it's not true, right? And uh, I think that's been my, the last five years, been like the hard part is to learn to define acceptance for myself. Um, that's something that I've dealt with a therapist about redefining acceptance. Yeah. And I think before Austin, I probably could have defined acceptance in like one, one definition. Now I define it like in three different ways. So <laughs> it's the complexity of, you know, living on this earth and all these tragedies that happen to us is it's complicated. Yeah. There's no right, wrong reason. There's just, you know, can you be better from this or not? And the fact that it's a choice is very hard, I think, for people to understand is like, you literally have to choose to be better. Like, and that's hard when you're, there's a hole in your heart. It is hard to like keep driving on. And that's why I'm grateful that I have, you know, Jeanette with me because in some ways we share that, right? She hurts. I hurt. My kids hurt. I hurt. And I have that that background. And I feel really bad for people that, you know, they may not have the family support. My heart goes out to them because that's extremely hard to do on yourself. And hopefully they have somebody in their life that, you know, can share, share in that and help them. But um, yeah. I'm grateful for friends and family that really have helped us along the way. Yeah. Which is such a important part of the resilience process is finding some connection, even if it's just one or two trusted people that you can confide in and and share your grief and allow to mourn and and be mourned with right it's so important we're going to get started in your story i'm going to take a quick break but i love all of the things you said and it's so important because it is a choice i love that that you brought that up i'm in a lot of widow grief groups and i see a lot of people just choosing to remain in their pain and choosing grief over moving forward, mm-hmm. feeling stuck, unable to move on. And it's part of the reason I decided to become a coach. And I want to be able to support people in moving forward. It is true. Their loss is great. But I do believe that they, no matter what they said to you, what no matter what was spoken you only have so many days and none of it is promised. And everyone that's lost someone, you really key into that. So it doesn't have to be, it may be a process. It may take time, but moving forward and making that choice to truly live is such a key element to really living your best life and being able to be of value in the world, right? We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to get right into your story. And I can't wait to have you share it with our audience. We'll be right back. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And we're back. Chris, tell me about your story. Tell me about Austin. All right. This is my favorite part to talk about. And uh, I'll tell you that it was years and I was kind of noticing some some strange things. When Austin was 12 years old, he was playing Little League Baseball like most kids. And we noticed that he started to have trouble like closing his glove. Uh, So he's dropping like whenever someone throwing the ball, he would drop it. And then all of a sudden, when the next year came around, he said, I don't want to play anymore. And we're like, this is kind of odd because he had many friends on the baseball team. And then I noticed that he had a strange gait in his walk. And I thought at first that maybe it just, it's because, you know, young boys, when they're like 13 years old, they go on these growth spurts and their knees hurt and uh, they'll all get Osgood slaughters, all these things. They go from 5'2 to 5'10 over the summer. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, so that's that about was, the time, right? I mean, he's yeah, 12. Right. So it's kind of confusing at the time. Like, is it just going through this awkward stage? I remember when I was in ninth, you know, eighth grade, my feet got to size 12 and like, I couldn't dribble basketball because it bounced off the top of my foot. And I was like, what is wrong with me? You know? <laughs> uh, so I thought a lot, comparing to myself, I thought something's, you know, off. But as it got going a few months later, we noticed it kept getting progressively worse. So we were in California when I was doing graduate school. And so we moved to uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky. So just about an hour south of Louisville. So we went there. Uh, we had him go see his doctor. And this is, unfortunately, is a shared experience that most parents with children with serious medical conditions experience, especially when it comes to cancer, is a lot of what the parent sees isn't credited by the physician. Oh, Uh, yeah. And so it took me in verbal altercations to get the referral of a period of three months to get Austin into seeing uh, ortho, to get the ortho referral. Wow. Because they, like, they told me that nothing was wrong with him. And I was like, I know there's something wrong with him. Like, this isn't normal. Um, so the left side of his leg, it was like his foot would flop. His hip was like, he was always complaining when he would walk. Anyway, we go to ortho. We get there. I show them. They're like, yeah, something's wrong. And they said, I think it may be something neurological. So six weeks later, we go to neurology. And that neurologist saw Austin and did a simple test, having him stick his tongue out and noticing that it leaned to one side. So with a brainstem tumor, when it crosses the, like the neurons, it affects motor function on different sides of your body as it crosses through your body. So you'll have like uh, loss of motor function on the left side, but the right side of your face will be some, you'll lose motor function on that side. So his tongue leaned to the right. And she was the first one that says, I think he has a brain lesion. So we went in and did an MRI two days later up in Louisville, and it revealed um, a brainstem tumor. So the type of tumor he had was a DIPG, which is diffused intrinsic pongalioma, uh, which just simply means that the cancer develops within the pons and grows outward in his brainstem. So thus becoming like inoperable. Um, wow. So we got that. Not diagnosis. what a parent wants to hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they told me. And so, uh, like I told you, we've, as a family, always vow that no matter what it is, we say it to each other. And so I went outside and I sat in the car with Austin and told him what happened. This was January 4th of 2017. 
and told him that he has a, a tumor. It is going to have to have a craniotomy to try to remove parts of it, to try to relieve so they the did, pressure. Okay, so they, there was part of it that was operable, but not the whole, Correct. they couldn't remove the entirety of it. Correct. Okay. So we go, January 6th, he had his first craniotomy. So after that, he came out, which for a 13 year old boy is shocking to come out of surgery and be uh, paralyzed where he couldn't walk. He couldn't use his arms. And we lived in the hospital for a month and a half. And so luckily I was in the military. And Did, hold on a second. Did they prepare you for that? Did they say we're going to go do this, but he is no longer going to be able to function? There was like, they told us they don't know exactly what's going to happen. Okay. There'll be some motor function loss, but he should be able to regain it because relieving the pressure of the tumor should help him gain back some, some movement. Okay. Um, so he gains movement back every day. He got a little bit better. So he was getting a little better. One of the most impactful parts of this story was years ago when I was enlisted in the army, I had a leader that said, Hey, you should become an officer. Why don't you go get your college degree and come back in? And so I was like, okay. So I went to did my undergrad and I was like, well, I'm going to do it in something I really like. So I did kinesiology, right? So oh, all fun. exercise science stuff. Um, and so when we came back in the military, like becoming an officer, our pay increased dramatically. So I thought, what? That's the miracle, right? That was so inspired. But the third night I was sleeping in a bed next to Austin in the, re- in the hospital. And uh, in the middle of the night, I heard Austin crying, but it wasn't like, out loud crying it was like the weeping crying and uh he tapped me on my arm because i was just laying in the bed next to him you know those fold-out couches that are so comfy (laughs) but uh he tapped me on his arm and uh he said dad and i'm like what's wrong i thought something was wrong like he was in pain and he's like dad i want to walk again he's like will you please dad help me walk again and going back to me getting my education is like having that background I know motor function. I know how to help him. And to see my son turn to me and say, like, dad, help me. Like, I don't want to be like this. And I said, okay, Austin, if you want to do this, we'll do this. And so the next day, um, the nurses tried to push him in the wheelchair and I'd like smack his, smack their hands away. Like, no, push yourself. Austin. if you want to get out of here, we got to fight. And uh, I'll never forget. I recorded it all on social media just because our family, no one's around us, but We'd shut the door and I was like, Austin, you got to get stronger. And we do our own exercises and I'm like, we're going to get out of here. And we, I went home that first week and I told the nurse, I'm only going to come back with one week bag. We're going to leave rehab. She's like, sir, it doesn't work that way. I was like, yes, it does. Austin, do you want to leave in a week? He said, yeah. I was like, we'll leave in a week. I came back and we left a week later. Um, So we left there and we went to the rehab down the street by March. Austin was back in school. Wow. So he, um, it was a miracle to watch him be so devoted and like to see your child turn to you and say like, help me. And just to see the drive where we spent, you know, almost six weeks there, but Austin never complained. And that's something that is a miracle in itself for like a teenage kid not to complain, right? That he's hungry, that 
whatever it may be. But that's the same message I've seen with other children that have gone through pediatric cancer. They're all like pretty amazing, similar shared stories. Mm-hmm. And once we got got him back on his feet, he was back in school. Because he had chemo every Friday, they put an access port in his chest. So that meant that he couldn't play contact sports. So that summer, Austin said, although he was going into high school, he said, I would like to play golf. And we're like, you've never played golf. And he's like, well, I've hit it before. I think I can do it. And we're like, okay. <laughs> so he, <laughs> we're like, whatever. I mean, the kid already got a raw deal, you know, like, right. you love like basketball and, and they won't let you play any of that. So he, uh, he tried out and he made the high school golf team, like from his going from his eighth grade to ninth grade, he made only five kids make the team that actually get to play. Um, and so we made the golf team. That summer was the most beautiful summer that I'm forever grateful for because uh, there's Austin. We lived in a kind of a rural area. And I remember we were just sitting on the porch swing and Austin was just running. Like not after anything, just running around our backyard. And uh, he came up and we're like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm just running. And I'm like, like just around the grass. He's like, yeah. He's like, I'm finally, finally normal. And uh, we were all up in hope that everything was going to go, was going the right way by September things started going downhill. So we noticed he started losing strength in his left hand and would stop using it. So he wouldn't use his left hand a lot. And so I think Jeanette noticed that. Um, We started asking him about it. He started like struggling playing golf because he couldn't hold on to things. He couldn't feel his left hand anymore. I think October, we went in and had another MRI. And that's when it revealed that the tumor had grown. And at this time, they had come up with a new test that test him for a mutation and identified that Austin actually had the grade four tumor. And that's when we were. For those, that's the first time we started to panic. Because <laughs> for those in our audience, what is a grade four t- tumor? How, do, how are they graded and what does that really mean? Um, well, it all. I mean, every tumor, every cancer is a little bit different, Mm -hmm. Um, just meaning that uh, his had become the most aggressive that it could be. So that's the top. That's the top of the, right? And being within his brainstem, that means that it's growing. And so he's losing a lot more motor function to where uh, he lost the ability to swallow. He was in a wheelchair. So we end up, he tried point radiation, which is just directly on the tumor on certain points, and then uh, along with chemotherapy. We did that for six weeks every Friday. Again, so this was, yeah, so he had the radiation every day, and we still did chemo every Friday. His two grandpas actually came out and helped us. So they would take him to his appointment, and for both of them, that was probably the most touching thing that they both have shared with me is just to be there with your grandson as he's, you know, fighting for his life. It was really impactful for them. After radiation, he didn't improve that much. Mm. 
and then it got really bad. Did so he have to he get a feeding see. tube because he couldn't yeah, swallow? Through his nose. Yeah. Yeah. So then by January, he was bedridden and we couldn't take care of him in the house anymore. His, I mean, because this, this time he was still growing. Yeah. So he had gotten taller than his mom. So it's like, we're, you know, we can't carry this kid around the house. And we went in and tried to do another craniotomy to try to reduce. And so he can gain some motor function. We went in in February of 2018 and we never left the hospital. Oh. So originally we thought the first two days it was looking good. And then his body wasn't able to process um, CO2 out of his out of his body. So then they had to incubate and we went off and on with the incubation. And then the second week of March, right before his birthday, uh, right after his birthday in the hospital, when he turned 15, uh, so his birthday is March 6th. And so he passed away March 16th. That last week, uh, the whole team, everybody that we knew, the oncology, uh, the surgeon, the hospital staff, everybody pulled Jeanette and I into a conference room and told us individually by their teams that there's nothing that they can do. I'm so sorry. Let's just take a pause right there. Um, we're going to need to take a break. We'll be right back. back Chris man this just has to be devastating you go in there hoping that you're going to buy maybe another year maybe okay we're going to start this process again but we're going to get more time right I'm sure that that's the headspace that you're in yeah it wasn't until radiation didn't work is the first time that we actually had been approached by the oncology team by other our, the team of people that were helping with Austin's care that we actually started to get that this could be terminal. Up until then, we had had the optimistic way that we could reduce this because it, for the first initial test came back grade one, which is benign. So, it, But the problem with the structure of a tumor is that you could test one part of it and can say grade one, benign. You could test another part and it's malignant, grade four. right? Yeah. And that's, I mean... That's why there's people paid to do that stuff, but right. um, the complexity of it. So when we were told that Austin, there's nothing else that they could do, we decided that first Jeanette and I both just told them, uh, their team of about 50 people in this conference room, we just told them that like, we were grateful for what they could do, but we also were blessed to have a son for 15 years. And like, that's the way that we took it as that. Um, we're grateful that we had a wonderful son that we didn't have to fight with, that we didn't have to, uh, you know, all the different things that teenagers can do in this world. We didn't have that. Um, we just had a, a son that loved his sisters and just wanted to make other people happy. And they asked us, do they want to tell him? And we said, no, we'll do it. 
So we went and got our two daughters and we told them on the side. And then we went to Austin's bedside and then we all hugged hands as a family. And then um, we told Austin that there's nothing more they can do. And uh, he cried, but uh, it was more of, he didn't want it to hurt. He was scared that it was going to hurt to die. And so we all just hugged him and told him he's not going to feel anything. You know, it's not going to hurt. And we just talked about, you know, he's been such a good kid. I was like, and we just gave him confidence that, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of in, you know, leaving this world. You're a great person. Like, you're loved. You love others. Like, you're going to return to live with God again. Like, there's nothing to be, you know, and you're saying that as a parent that you're, I mean, it's hard because I'll say the past, before that, the year and a half, that's probably the hardest thing we ever did was parent a teenage boy, like, that's getting a raw deal of cancer treatment, right? Because in some days, he still is a teenage boy. Right. (laughs) But how do you parent? How do you parent a kid that's already gotten a raw deal? You know, and those are probably the hardest lessons we learned along this journey. Um, but we told our family, so all of our extended family, and uh, we let Austin pick the day. So he said Friday. And uh, we we let all our family know, and they all came out on Wednesday and Thursday of that week. So the next two days, they all showed up. On Thursday, we had all of them. There was 30 of his great-grandparents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, uh, all in the room. And we all, he moved, had got moved over into hospice care. So he had a larger room. And uh, we spent two hours with him all. And we went around the room and just told us of the fun things that we all remember of Austin. And at first it was crying. And then it just turned into like laughter. And that's something that I always remember about Austin is that he could always like bring a smile to your face and make you laugh. Some of the jokes were at inappropriate times, but it could make you laugh. (laughs) And then we uh, decided that we'd let all his family say goodbye one-on-one to him. And so for the next like hour and a half, every person that loved Austin on this earth got to say goodbye. And uh, we stayed with Austin that last night as a family and slept with all all five of us in the same bed. Um, And then we... uh, Jeanette and I held Austin's hand as they uh, unplugged and pulled out the uh, him off of the machines, and uh, his little heart kept going for three hours. And then we just watched him take his last gasp of air, and uh, then the the real struggle started. But to be honest, the first from the moment he passed to about three months after. I have to say that we felt extremely strong. We felt like extremely lifted, lifted up, extremely supported by not only people around us, but, you know, our God. We felt supported by everyone or everything. We felt extremely strong. But then life goes on, right? (laughs) But we're still back in March. And that's when I think the real resiliency comes out. Yeah. It's easier 
not e it's not easy, but it's easier when you have a lot of people cheering for you. It's yeah. very hard. We moved three months after Austin passed away. Unfortunately, like the contract that was supposed to move our house, uh, it fell through. So there we were packing up Austin's room, which we weren't prepared to do yet. And just you find yourself clinging onto everything, like his dirty socks, like everything you just want to like the scent, like anything he wrote, we just wanted to keep it just to like, it's like something that you could feel that like, you know, that he touched, like we just wanted to touch it. And it was a, uh, it was a sharp lesson for the next five years, how things would change and how we'd have to make a choice. How are we going to get better from this? Because once we moved, we were on our own because now nobody knew Austin's story. When we were there, when it happened, everybody knew his story. Now we moved to a new state. Nobody knows the story. And so now we're kind of on our own. And I think really that's where the journey to becoming better really started. Yeah. It is so hard. I mean, I can't imagine that because you do have your support system where you were and had built this life with Austin. Now you're in a whole different position. And it's really, it's offensive anyway when somebody you love dies. I think I shared this with you on the phone while we were talking I remember being at the Smiths and, and doing my grocery shopping and I just was overcoming grief. I don't even know what I was looking at. I don't know if it was something I would have bought from. I don't know what the trigger was, but I just started crying and it was ugly crying. And I was so offended and I was looking around and I was thinking people must think I'm crazy. And then I ended up leaving the cart and going out and just going home. And I remember being so angry because nobody knew my husband was dead and how dare they go on with their life. Like it feels offensive and it's kind of a shocking experience because these people don't know my husband. Like, why would they know that he died? Right. Like, you know, like somebody, uh, I'll say what shocked me the most was it was the thing that you think would give you the most support, which everybody would say to us and stuff like that is most people would say that you know, they'll pray for us. They'll do all those things. And I'll, to be honest, the hardest thing I had, I had to do after Austin passed away and after he was buried and all the support went away was pray. To pray was really hard because I was tired of crying and it hurt. Every time I would pray, I would cry. And it was just like, I'm so tired. Like you, you feel exhausted of, like, how much weaker do I need to be? Like, um, it's a weird relationship. To, and I share that with people because I'm like, I know I can't be the only one that was like, this is hard. It is. Right? It's yeah, hard not to just absolutely. keep asking why. It's hard not to go there. Like, why Austin? You know, and when we would see people with other kids and we see how their parent-child relationship is, like, and they're complaining about their kids. And I'm like, I would give anything to, you know pick up his dirty clothes and his plates he just shoved underneath the couch. Like you miss it. Yeah. And it's weird that it takes a tragedy to really realize, you know, the void that comes from it and open my eyes to what other people are going through. Yeah. Which I don't think you could really gain that without experiencing. It's very hard. I'm sure maybe there is somebody, but that's not me. I have going through it. 
open my eyes to what other people are struggling with, that, uh, to be more aware of that stuff. You know, my husband was up at Huntsman, and so you in and out of there, you see children getting treatment, you know, even though we're going to the floor for prostate cancer, we're seeing those kids and we're crossing them on the elevator or the stairs, right? And my husband never asked why. And I think it's probably why I never got to to really that point. I remember watching my husband and this little child was all hooked up with tubes and like a cast on their arm or probably just wrapped because of probably the chemotherapy uh, IVs or whatever. And this child had to be like three, just old enough to walk, but really small and, and weak. And I remember seeing his face and I remember asking him at the end of that appointment that day, I said, why don't you ever say why? And he said, I see these kids every time I go in and out of this hospital and I am not going to live the full life that I wanted to live, but I've lived a full life. And I can't complain for the life I've been given. So it is interesting. Children, in my experience, the children that I've encountered in that process, they do have a a resilience and a strength that is oddly really profound. Yeah, They kind of take it in stride. They take it in stride, right? Yeah, because we used to go to therapy to get treatment every Friday and we would walk in. So the children that have, uh, so like leukemia, right? Mm-hmm. So they get treatment for, a, it's a long road, right? High percentage of people survivability rate, but it's a long road, right? It's a long, long yeah. road. Um, the young kids, because you have to sit there for like an hour. Mm-hmm. So they'd have these closed rooms and the nurse and the parents are in there holding the child down. You can hear them screaming and when we would walk in, Austin would be like, at least that's not us, right? <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I'm like, you already got a raw deal. <laughs> like, right. But I didn't even dawn on me to think that way. But there he is, like, you know, fighting his own mortality and thinking, like, wow, that's got to be hard for them, too. Yeah. And he used to see kids that they would all lose their hair. And he'd be like, oh, that's got to be tough. And I'm like, look at what you have. <laughs> you know, I wanted to say that. But his perspective is always different. And it's really educational to me and profound to see people that are fighting mortality, the resiliency that shows up to where they gain a different perspective. Yeah. Right. Where we get stuck in traffic and you're like, why am I always stuck in traffic? Right. Why, why I always get cut off? Why, 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 why? But here you are with people facing mortality and they don't ask why. Yeah. They just move forward and just enjoy the moment. I was like, it was a very like, powerful lesson to learn similar to what you shared is kind of opened my eyes to the things whoa maybe that yeah i'm glad that you brought it up because i've often reflected on that you know in this process and i'm like why don't i ask why why aren't i bitter about it and i'm like why would i ask why john never asked why you know and so it's kind of an (laughs) interest it's kind of interesting how much we can learn unfortunately from these bitter losses yeah. I think no, I, I, I want to really thank you for, for coming on and sharing this story. We're not done yet. There's a lot more to the story and things that you are doing now to honor Austin, which we're going to get into in our second episode. My co-host is here and I think she'll be joining us for our second uh, session. So you'll get to meet Jenny. Thank you for, for sharing 
such a tragic story. I mean, I know it was my favorite story to share, though. (laughs) Yeah, I love telling Austin's story. Isn't it beautiful to be able, even though it's so painful, it's like it brings value and purpose to their life that it's, it may have been short, but there's been so much teaching and growth from it. And it was valuable. Yeah, it was absolutely uniquely valuable. Thank you so much for sharing. If you like what you've heard today. You can subscribe to our podcast, leave us a rating and review. It helps us move up in uh, the different apps, uh, wherever you get your podcast. If you know someone who has a real story about real life that they're willing to share, or if you do, you can contact us by clicking on the box above Relentlessly Resilient on Facebook. Schedule a 15-minute call with me. I would love to talk to you, see if it's a fit for us. Our focus is on resiliency, not just the trauma and the heartaches, but the lessons learned and how we've grown to move forward and live our best lives. You can also find us on Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. Remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their life. Have a great day. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.